Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. Good time. For the rest of you, I'd like to invite you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16. And I'm thankful that you are here today in the house of the Lord to worship with us. Luke chapter 16. One of my favorite TV shows, and it came out about 10 years ago. They've rebooted it on Amazon Prime. Some of you may have never heard of it. Some of you may like it, but it's one of our our family's favorite shows. It's the TV show called Leverage. Leverage is a show about a bunch of con artists. That got your attention. Con artists that actually do the right thing. So they usually take on the case of a person that's been um, harassed or a person that has been done wrong by a corporation and they've tried everything and, 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 and the system's been rigged against them and so they're at the end of their rope and they just they don't have anywhere to go and so leverage comes in, the team comes in and they use like con artists, um, they use high technology, they use disguises, they use thievery, they use all these types of illegal things to actually end up doing the right thing. And all throughout the, the series, you're rooting for the con artists to trick and to, to, to use thievery and to do all of this stuff because in the end it all works out. And so usually at the end of the, of the show, there's a, there's a flashback that shows how they got everything done with their disguises and their technology and all of this kind of stuff. And, and I had to think about that. You're sitting there watching dishonest, manipulative people break the law and you're rooting for them. Or maybe you watch a, a show where the, the main character's robbing a bank and you're rooting for them to rob the bank. And you're like, why am I rooting for somebody to break the law? This is a tension here. There is a tension sometimes when you watch a TV show or you read a book where, where somebody, the main character, is doing something dishonest, doing something manipulative, and you end up rooting for them. And you're thinking to yourself, well, now why am I doing that? There is a tension in rooting for someone who is dishonest or manipulative, or it's clever, they use their ingenuity to advance themselves. Now the passage before us contains this type of tension. And I have a confession to make. This, is a, this has been one of the most difficult passages of sermons, I, or difficult passages of scripture I have preached in a long time. Most scholars think that this passage before us is the most difficult of all of Jesus' parables to understand. So it took me a long time this week to understand what's going on here, and I'm going to do my best this morning under the power of the Holy Spirit to help you understand what this passage means because it has confused and shocked and baffled people for the past 2,000 years. What does it really mean? J.C. Ryle has said this. He said, There are knots in this parable which perhaps will never be untied until the Lord comes again. So I'm just telling you straight up, I could be wrong this morning, I hope I'm not, but this is a very difficult passage of scripture that is very difficult to understand, and I hope we leave today understanding it. 
So please pray for me and, 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 and pray for the Holy Spirit to help you understand this passage of Scripture. So what I'm going to do today is I'm going to um, address this passage of Scripture from three different vantage points. But let's just go ahead and let's just read it. And after we read it, you'll understand kind of where I'm coming from, why this is a difficult passage of Scripture. So Luke chapter 16, the parable of the dishonest manager. He said to the disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, Well, what shall I do? Since my master is taking the management away from me, I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I've decided what to do, so that when I'm removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So, summoning his master's debtors, one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? He said, A hundred measures of oil. He said to him, Take your bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. Then he said to another, And how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, take your bill and write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who's faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who's dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If you then have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you to true riches? And if you've not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and Money. Perfectly clear, right? You ready to go home? There's a lot going on in this passage of scripture, but let me just let me just let me just form it down into a succinct question. I think this this parable, this passage of scripture, forces us to ask this question. And here's the question: Do you master your money for the glory of God, or does your money master you? Do you master your money for the glory of God, or does your money master you? Now, here's what I want to do this morning. Three, three things. First of all, I want to explain this difficult parable, what really is going on. So number two, let's explain the parable. Number two, let's give some teachings and some, some lessons that emerge from the parable that Jesus gives us. And number three, I'm going to leave you hanging. So you're going to have to wait for number three. It's like, Pastor Sean, why do you do that? I do that so you'll pay attention. So when I get to the third point, like, oh, he's going to get there. So let's try to exp- explore and explain the parable itself. Now, if you remember last week, it was the parable of the lost coin, the lost sheep, the lost son. It was the, the parable of the prodigal son who, who squandered and wasted all of his possessions. And Jesus was preaching to the Pharisees. Now, here he's addressing his disciples, Because in verse 16, verse 1, he said to his disciples, to the disciples. So he's addressing the disciples here. And not just the 12, but probably all of those that were following him and listening to him. And so he tells a parable, and remember a parable is a little story, about a rich man who had a dishonest manager. And so here's the deal. There was a rich man, this is verse 1, 
who had a manager or a steward, some translations say steward, a manager, a household manager, and charges were brought to him that he was wasting his possessions. He was either mismanaging funds or he was doing something dishonest. But anyway, his, his owner, his boss comes in and says, listen, I've caught you doing some mismanaging. You've been wasteful in money. That word wasteful or he was wasting his possessions, it's the same Greek word that was used back in chapter 15, verse 13, when the prodigal son squandered all of his possessions. So evidently, this manager had misappropriated funds, and he gets fired. But the, the, the rich man says, before I fire you, get your books in order, bring the books to me. I want to make a final accounting here before I let you go, before I fire you. Now, this man's in a panic, because in verse 3, what shall I do? Since my master's taking the management away from me, I'm not strong enough to dig, I'm ashamed to beg. He... he Back then, there's no severance packages. There's no unemployment. So this man thinks to himself, I'm a desk jockey. I'm a white-collar guy. I'm not going to go out there and dig holes. That's manual labor. I'm above that. I can't go out there and do manual labor, but I don't want to beg. So what am I going to do? Aha, I've got an idea. That's what you see in verse 4. You don't quite catch this. In verse 4 in the original language, I've decided what to do. It's kind of like this. Aha, I've got it. I figured out a plan. And so here's what he does. He wants to ingratiate himself with the debtors. Because he thinks to himself, I'm getting fired. And if I need to get a job out there, maybe these guys that owe money, I can ingratiate myself to them, and maybe they'll either give me a job or they will give me a good reference. And so he makes a risky calculation because he says to himself, I'm going to just tell these guys that they owe less than what they were originally told on their debt. I'm going to lower the original amount of their debt. Now this is a risky calculation because in one way, He's really making friends with these debtors. They're going to be happy with him because they get to pay lower. But he's making a risky calculation because what about his boss? He's shorting his boss, who he just got fired from. And that puts his boss in an awkward situation because it makes the debtors maybe think to themselves, well, has the boss been up and up all this time? Has he charged me exorbitant interest? Why, why am I getting lower interest now? What's going on here? So this shrewd manager really puts himself at an advantage. And it's risky, but it's to his advantage. And so he gives two examples here. He says he goes one by one to all those that owed debts. But we have two examples here. One who owed olive oil and one who owed wheat. So you see there in verse 5, So summoning his master's debtors by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe, master? He said, A hundred measures of oil. Okay, a hundred measures of oil. Back then, that's probably about 800 to 900 gallons of olive oil, about a year's salary. So this guy owes about a year's salary. And what does he say? Quickly write 50. Cut it in half. The manager lowers the bill by half. Now, the debtor's probably thinking to, my, to himself, now, did the rich man charge me 100% interest on this? Why is it being lowered, to f lowered by 50? How come I only owe half? Something's going on here. But I'm happy because I only owe half of what I originally owed. And then the next guy comes in that owes wheat. 
It says there, a hundred measures, that's probably a thousand, thousand bushels of wheat. Um, wheat could probably last a little bit longer than oil back then. It didn't spoil as fast. And so it's lowered by 20. So he only has to pay 80% of what he was owed. And so this shrewd manager basically goes to these debtors and says, listen, I'm going to give you less than what, what you originally had on your bill. Originally you had on your debt. He wants to ingratiate. He wants to get on their good side. So did the plan work? He's fired anyway. Did the plan work? We come to verse 8, and this is the hardest part of the entire parable. What happens in verse 8? The master, okay, the rich man, the guy's boss, the one who is expecting to receive the debts from his debtor, comes to the dishonest manager And it says, the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. Commended him. Literally in the Greek text, praised him. Now what's going on here? He praised the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. Now clearly this man's being dishonest. Because it says there, the manager commended the dishonest manager. The master commended the dishonest manager. In the original language, that word dishonest means unrighteous. And then later on you find out in the next verse, he could also be called a son of this world. So he's described here as worldly, dishonest, and unrighteous. But he's clever. He's shrewd. I don't know what your translation says there in verse 8 for shrewdness. That's the only time this word shows up in the entire Bible which makes it a little bit difficult to understand. The word means clever. He had ingenuity. It could even mean he had street smarts. He was shrewd. And so the master praises this scoundrel, this dishonest man, for ingenuity in providing for his future. The dishonest manager was diligent, and he made sure that life would be good for him after being fired. In other words, he put himself in a position of advantage. He put himself in a position of advantage, number one, with the debtors, because the debtors would love what he did. Hey, you're lowering my bill? That's awesome. But he also kind of put his boss in a position of awkwardness to kind of explain why this was going on. Did you charge me high interest in the first place? Why is it being lowered? So basically, he's put in a position of advantage. Now, Let me just tell you what's not going on here. The man is not praised for being dishonest. I want you to read it carefully. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. He's not being commended for his dishonesty, but for his shrewdness. Now, that doesn't help matters much better anyway. One commentator says it this way. I think it's a good way to put it. The commentator said, there is a legitimate difference between saying, I applaud the clever steward because he acted dishonestly, versus saying, I applaud the dishonest steward because he acted cleverly. What does this mean? What does it mean that he was commended for being shrewd? One thing that we have to understand when we're doing Bible study, and especially with parables, 
is just because Jesus tells a parable doesn't necessarily mean that what's spoken by the characters are condoned by Jesus. He's giving an example here. This is not Jesus saying, hey, we should commend or we should praise dishonest work. This is not a parable that you can take out of context and say, hey, I've got a proof text right here for being dishonest in my working, being dishonest with my money. I can do whatever I want at work because i got a parable to prove it. That's not what's going on here. We have to be very careful. And so we come to this parable and we think, okay, what in the world is Jesus saying here? And there's a lot of scholarly debate as to when the parable actually ends. I think the parable ends in the middle of verse 8, that first sentence. The master commended the dishonest, the master commended the dishonest manager for shrewdness, period. I think that's where the parable ends. In the middle of that verse where it says, for the sons of this world, I think Jesus is now giving teaching related to what he's just told in the parable. And and so Jesus begins to give teaching that's going to explain back to us what that parable meant. So what are the teachings that Jesus is giving in regards to this parable about this shrewd, dishonest manager? Okay, so so that's the parable at, at face value. It's a confusing parable. What's really going on here with this parable? Thankfully, Jesus has some explanations. So let's go to part two this morning, and let's look at the, the lessons or the teachings, or, or how does Jesus explain back the parable and give us some lessons about how money may master us or we should master our money. Let's think of four things here that Jesus shows us, four lessons, four teachings, four applications on how we are to relate to him, especially with our money our finances, and our possessions. That's really what this parable is about, is about our money, finances, and possessions. So here's the first. We should invest time, energy, and focus on eternal matters. As Christians, we should invest time, energy, and focus on eternal matters. Notice what Jesus says there in the middle of verse 8. For the sons of this world, that's talking about unbelievers, the sons of this world, are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. He's making a comparison between believers and non-believers. And what's Jesus saying? What's he saying here? When he says the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. What he's saying is this. Unbelievers... Non-Christians are diligent, they're focused, they're energetic. They place a lot of time and energy and focus on things that don't last. Temporary things. Things of this world. Things that are passing away. They put a lot of time, a lot of energy, a lot of focus in things that are passing away. The children of this world. But the sons of light are us. As Christians. And so what's the comparison? What is Jesus saying here? He's saying then, in comparison, how much more should we who are children of light, we are as Christians, how much more should we focus time, energy, attention, focus to eternal matters, things that will last? Now I'm going to start to step on toes this morning, and I'm okay with that. I've been your pastor for a long time, and I can handle it. Um, we can put a lot of time and energy and resources into very good things, but not eternal things. We can put a lot of time and energy and resources into camps, into sports, into extracurricular activities, into toys, 
into all these types of things that you may want you to excel or your kids to excel. And I'm not saying those things are necessarily wrong, but at the same token, we can be very lax in investing in eternal matters. Over the years, Pastor Andrew, our youth pastor, has had some, he's seen some trends in our youth ministry. And it seems like youth ministry across the nation, there's just some trends in how busy teenagers are, how much they're consumed with extracurricular activities, how, how youth group is kind of just one of many things that parents are trying to, to jockey, to, to, to balance. And so um, I asked Pastor Andrew to do a study um, on trends that he's seen nationwide. And I'm really appreciative of what Pastor Andrew did because he took a lot of research, a lot of studies, and he put it together into a document. And he sent it out to us as elders and deacons. And I'm, I'm, if you're a youth parent or if you want to see it, it would be very encouraging to you to see the data that's out there talking about just some trends we're seeing in youth ministry. And so let me just give you a few of these. And I want to make sure this one's actually accurate. And, I, and so, Andrew, hopefully I've, 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 I've done this correctly. Um, this is from an article on give teens more downtime and support them with time management. One of these studies shows that the average student spends over 10 hours per day on extracurricular activities? A week, okay. Your document said day, but I want to check with you because I don't think you could spend 10 hours, so 10 hours a week, not a day. The average teenager spends 10 hours a week on extracurricular activities. And a lot of this leads to a lack of sleep and a lot of stress. Now, this is, there's a big State of the Youth Ministry um, survey that came out back in 2016, conducted by Barna, and it's probably even more so now after COVID. So this is about um, six years old. But Barna said that 55% of youth parents believe church involvement is one of many extracurricular activities. One in three see it as a priority in the life of their teenager. And so I'm not trying to lay a guilt trip on parents, but here's what I'm, here's what I'm saying. I wonder how much time, energy, focus, money, investment we place on things that aren't going to last versus investing in the spiritual growth and eternal life of your child. You can maybe cut corners on church and church things and youth ministry. And so I'm not trying to lay a guilt trip. I'm just trying to make us think about what Jesus says here. If the world spends time and energy and focus on things of the world and they're shrewd and they're putting time and energy to kind of get ahead... Jesus is basically saying, why don't we take that same time and energy and focus and put it towards eternal things, things that are going to matter in the end. J.C. Ryle said this, the diligence of worldly men about the things of this world should put to shame the coldness of professing Christians about the things of eternity. Sometimes we as Christians can be cold and lax and lack focus on the things of eternity. And the, and, and the unbelievers are, are like pursuing their stuff to the max. And we're just sitting back as Christians not taking that time and energy to focus in on eternal things. Second Peter 1, 10-11. Peter says, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent. Be diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Notice what Peter says there. Be diligent 
to confirm your calling and election. In other words, make sure you know you're saved. Parents, be diligent to invest in your children's salvation. You can't save them, but you can invest in their spiritual life. And one of the ways you do that is that do you make it a priority to come to church on Sunday morning for the Lord's Day? Do you make it a priority in your family? or do you, Is church optional? Is church one of many things on the, all the things you've got to do? I've got sports, I've got extracurricular, I've got this, i got that, and church is just kind of one of those things? Or do you see your child's spiritual growth, their eternal salvation, as, as fundamental to them, and you put time, energy, and focus into their life? So I think the first thing Jesus is teaching us here, the sons of this world are more shrewd about dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. Unbelievers put time and energy and effort into pursuing temporary things. How much more should we who are Christians put time and energy and focus into things that are eternal? Again, I'm not saying that you shouldn't have your kids in sports. I'm not saying you shouldn't do extracurricular activities. I'm not being legalistic and saying you shouldn't do that. I'm just saying look at the balance. Look at where your focus truly is. Okay, the second thing is this makes it even more difficult in understanding what Jesus said. Second thing, use your resources for gospel advance and to bless others. Use your resources for gospel advance and to bless others. Now, look at what he says there in verse 9. I tell you, make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. Now, what in the world is Jesus saying there? What does it mean to make friends with your unrighteous wealth? Okay, unrighteous wealth. When Jesus talks about unrighteous wealth, he's not saying that you've gotten your money through dishonest means. That's not what he's saying here. That was a Hebraic expression often used in the Jewish culture of just riches of this world. Not gotten by deception or by theft, but just the riches of this world. Now, what does it mean to make friends for eternity by using your riches? What's Jesus saying here? What he's saying is use your money and resources for the spread of the gospel. To bless others with the gospel. In other words, think about it this way. Let's compare it to the unrighteous manager. We as believers should be creative. We should be ingenious. We should be using our wealth and possessions for gospel advance, for missions, for evangelism, for church planting, for benevolence. I don't know if you know, much of our church budget goes towards missions, church planting, evangelism, benevolence. When you give your offering, money goes to support missionaries, especially missionaries in the Middle East that we know missionaries in South Asia that we know, Christian witness to Israel, Campus Crusade missionaries that are working in Orlando, Florida. Uh, one of our former um, youth here is now doing missions for, among refugees, helping refugees that are Muslim come into the country. 
We locally here support cooperating ministries. We support the Lighthouse Addiction Center. Some of our money goes to support Justin Brown's church in Sydney, the Well Church, Joe Bowman's church, the Mission in Fort Morgan. A lot of our money goes to benevolence. And many of you also don't just give to this church, but some of you give to other types of organizations. Our family gives to Compassion International. Some of you give to other ministries. Last week we had Hope for Liberia here. So, you make friends with your money for eternal things. And notice what Jesus says there in verse 9. When it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. Now, what does it mean when it fails, they'll receive you into the eternal dwellings? What he means is this. When you've used that money of yours and it's come to an end, and you've invested wisely in the kingdom, in evangelism, in missions, in benevolence, to bless others for kingdom advance. When you've invested that money, it's an eternal investment. In other words, not that your money, quote-unquote, saves people, but have you ever thought there may be people in heaven because your money and resources went to support a missionary or a church planner or somebody that shared the gospel with them? And heaven is a happy place because you didn't know where your money, you may not really know where your money went, but you, you made friends with your money by giving it to gospel advance so that in heaven there's an impact. I don't think we'll really fully know until we get to heaven what the impact of our money is on gospel advance. But Jesus tells us in Matthew six nineteen through 20, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. Do you use your money in such a way that it impacts heaven? Are you using your money for gospel advance, to bless others, to give that money away so that people can hear the gospel? Are you making friends with your money for eternity? is what Jesus is saying. So that's the second teaching. Let's look at the third teaching. Third, true character is proven by faithfulness in small things. True character is proven by faithfulness in small things. Notice what Jesus says in verse 10. One who's faithful in a very little, very little, is also faithful in much. And one who's dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you've not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you to the true riches? And if you've not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? Are you a person of integrity in small things? Many of you know my former pastor, Ron Clement. He's preached here numerous times. He's kind of my mentor But back when he was in seminary, back in the 80s, he went to seminary at Southwestern Baptist Seminary in Fort Worth. And at that time, there was a big, huge ministry, a discipleship ministry. It produced all the Disciple Now materials. And and a lot of these preacher boys wanted to work for this discipleship company, this discipleship ministry. And these preacher boys came in, and they, they wanted to write curriculum, and they wanted to go on the speaking circuit, and they wanted to teach the classes, and they wanted to be up front. But here's the thing. If you wanted to go work for this discipleship ministry, here's what you had to do. And Ron Clement worked for them. 
for the first six months, you had to serve as either a janitor or you had to work in the warehouse. And the higher-ups were looking to see which of these preacher boys can we really trust? Who's willing to be a janitor for six months and never complain? Who's willing to work in the warehouse for six months and never complain? Who's willing to be? It was a vetting process. It was a way to filter out those that were wanting to get a big name from the very beginning. And so there were very few men that did the six months of being a janitor. But after the six months, guess what happened? The higher-ups came and said, we're immediately promoting you. And then they got to be the speakers, and they got to be the curriculum writers, and they got to do all that stuff because they were faithful in being a janitor for six months. It was the guys that wanted to be up front first. How can you be trusted with big things if you can't be trusted in the little things? So let me ask you some questions about integrity. Are you a person of your word? Do you pay back loans when your friends loan you money? Do you you return things that were borrowed right away? Think about your words. Do you tend to exaggerate? Do you tell little white lies to get ahead? What are you doing when no one is looking? What do people say about you at work behind your back? About your work ethic, about your attitude? Are you cutting corners? Or are you being lazy? Are you being unreliable? You see, what you do in the small things when no one's looking, that's your true character. What you do in the small things when no one's looking. And and parents, this should be taught to children at a young age. Because when you begin to teach your children at a young age to be faithful in small things, it begins to shape their conscience. It begins to help them grow into a godly young adult. If they can begin to be be, be, be faithful in small things. God will entrust them with greater things. And in verse 11, Jesus says, If you've not been faithful with unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you to true riches? If you've not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? Notice that Jesus says there in verse 12, being faithful with that which is another's. Another's. What's, what's Jesus saying here? He's reminding us that your money is not your own. It's God's money on loan to you. It's another's. It's God's money that he's giving to you on loan to use wisely. We really don't own anything. This was read earlier in Deuteronomy 8, 17 through 18. Beware lest you say in your heart, my, my power and the might of my hand have give, gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the power to get wealth that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is to this day. Everything belongs to God. Now, I find it interesting that Jesus calls money a little thing. Is money a little thing? Well, maybe a penny is a little thing or a quarter. How often do we take a little thing like money and make it a big thing? Bigger than it needs to be. Maybe it's the biggest thing in our life. And Jesus says, if you're not faithful in the little things, how am I going to trust you with the bigger things? Fourth, the fourth teaching here. Don't worship money over Jesus as your Lord. Don't worship money over Jesus as your Lord. 
Now, notice there in verse 13. No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Some older translations use the word mammon. You can't serve God and mammon. I like the word mammon because it actually ties back to the actual Hebrew word. The Hebrew word for mammon comes from the word that means to trust. Isn't it interesting that the word for money is related to that which you place your trust in? The idea here is this. Do you place all of your trust in Jesus? Or do you place all of your trust in money? You see, you will love what gives you security. Your heart will be drawn to and you'll be attached to that which gives you comfort, security, and satisfaction. And that meets your deepest needs. Because Jesus says you will be devoted to the one or devoted to the other. No servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one or love the other or he will be devoted. That word devoted means to have a strong attachment. To hold fast. If you love money and hold fast to money, you're basically saying to money, you're my savior. You'd never say that out loud, but that's what you're saying. I'm giving to you money what I should give to Jesus. I'm giving you my heart. I'm giving you my life. I'm giving you everything money because I think you money are going to provide for me. You're going to make me feel better. You're going to give me security. You're going to give me assurance. In other words, you're having money be to you what only Jesus should be to you, a Savior. You're putting money above Jesus. Matthew 6.21, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And then Psalm 86, 11, Teach me your way, Lord, that I may rely on your faithless. Give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. An undivided heart. You see, God wants all of us without qualification or negotiation. Think about that. God wants all of us without qualification or negotiation. But what do we often do? God I want some qualifications on how much you want of me. Do you really want all of me? How about maybe 50% of me, God? Let's, let's, let's make some qualifications here. And then we often negotiate with God. God, are you sure that you want all of me? Can we negotiate? God says, no, I want all of you without qualification or without negotiation. Now, a good place to start with this, with serving two masters, God and money, I mean, if you're not faithfully giving your tithes and offerings through the church, that would be a good place to start. Uh, I don't think the tithe is mandated, but I think it's a general principle of giving. I think it's, it's a great place to start. The principle is, do you honor God with your wealth? Proverbs 3.9, honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your crops. Ask yourself some questions before you purchase something, and this is very difficult for a lot of us to do. Because money is really tied to our hearts. Ask yourself some of these questions before you purchase something. Does this purchase invest in eternity? Will this bless others? Is this the best use of my money? Will this get me further into debt? Do I have to have this now or can I wait? Now, I'm not saying you should never buy anything. 
I'm not saying you should never go on a vacation. I'm not saying you should never have nice things. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, is when you make those purchasing decisions, always have at the front of your mind, is this putting the money or the possession or the thing above Christ? Is this investing in eternity? Is this blessing others? Is this, others, is, is this advancing the kingdom? Or is it more selfish and is it putting me more in debt? And is it really more about me? Okay, at this point... We've had a confusing parable, and we've had some teachings on money. We've had some ethical teaching on money, money management, how to manage your money. We've had some good teachings from Jesus, some good ethical teaching, how to be financially prudent, good financial advice. But I told you there's a third thing we're going to talk about this morning, and it's the most important. I left you hanging until the end. What does this have to do with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Here's the point. You can come away from a text like this and be beaten up. And you can be guilty. And you can be frazzled. And you can be confused. Here's what we need to understand. You and I cannot even begin to live out this passage of Scripture without Jesus and His power that comes from His death, burial, and resurrection and gift of the Holy Spirit to you. In other words, we're powerless to do anything in this passage of Scripture. Because who's the only perfect and righteous servant who did everything that his master asked of him? Jesus is the only perfect and righteous servant. Jesus is the only one that was qualified to die on the cross and rise again. And he never once sinned in thought, word, and deed. And so when we come to ethical teachings here in the Bible about money and finances, what do we often, what do, we often do? I know if you're like me, what do we often do? I am inadequate. I feel guilty. I'm not a good money manager. I, my heart's in the wrong place. You can come to these passages of Scripture, and you can leave today either feeling guilty because you're not doing the right thing, or you can leave feeling puffed up like, I'm going to go live for Jesus today, and you can do it in your own power. So there are two gospel truths we need to remember. Truth number one, when Jesus died on the cross, he finished all the work. John 19, 30, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished, and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Not only did Jesus die for your sins, Jesus died for your pocketbook. In your wallet, in your debit card. In other words, Jesus accomplished everything you would need to live the Christian life in power and victory because he finished it. You see, we don't need ethical teachings on how to be better money managers. We need a Savior who can save us from our sins and give us the power to live this out. We need Jesus to be Savior over our finances and our money. We don't just need good advice. We don't need good tips. We don't need just a, a little bit of uh, willpower here. We need a Savior because all of us are going to fall short when this comes to money. So truth number one, when Jesus died on the cross, he finished all the work. Truth number two, Jesus gives us everything we need to live the Christian life in his power. Everything we need, we have. Second Peter 1.3 his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. You see, we're not called to fulfill these demands in our own power and resources. 
You're not called to go be, go be a better money manager. Go tithe. Go do all of this in your own power. No, we need a Savior who died for our sins and supplies our weaknesses with His power and grants us grace upon grace. And so, instead of leaving here today feeling guilty because you're not doing enough, you're beat up because you fail all the time when it comes to money, instead of leaving here beaten up with guilt or instead of leaving here puffed up because, oh, Pastor Sean gave me some good money, money management tips, I'm going to go out there and I'm going to start managing my money better. You can have both responses today. I'm going to leave guilty. I'm going to leave empowered. But let me remind you, instead of leaving feeling guilty or leaving feeling puffed up with pride, let us leave today feeling dependent, dependent on Jesus for everything. Let's come to the end of our ropes and reach out to Him for salvation, for hope and power. Let's praise Him that He cried out, it is finished. He did all of this for us. Let's praise us. Let's praise Him that He's given us everything that we need for life and godliness. Let's praise Him for being our Savior and praise Him for His power. And so as we approach the Lord's Supper today, we come to the Lord's Supper weak. We come to the Lord's Supper frail. We come to the Lord's Supper understanding our inadequacies. We come to the Lord's Supper knowing our sin. But we come to the Lord's Supper with joy because Jesus paid it all. Aren't you thankful we don't sing the hymn, Jesus paid it some, half of it on the cross. I got to make up the rest. Man, I'm at such a loss. I just kind of made that up right as we were going here, but that's going to sell. That'll preach somewhere. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson spot, but he washed it white as so. So as we take the Lord's Supper this morning, let's give him glory alone. Trust and praise alone that He finished the work. He gives us everything we need. Don't ever go out of here thinking you're going to go out of here in your own power and your own strength to be a better money manager. You'll go out of here frustrated. You need to go out of here hearing, yes, I do need to be a better money manager. I need to have my money not master me. I need to master my money for the glory of God. But you never once do it in your own power. It's always because of Jesus, 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 and his blood shed on the cross, the empty tomb, the resurrection, and the gift of the Holy Spirit. He's given us everything we need for life and godliness. And so as we approach the Lord's table today, let's praise him that he's given us everything we need. Not just our salvation, but everything we need to live the Christian life. So let's bow our heads this morning and let's prepare to come to the Lord's table with joy this morning. Father, thank you that you've not left us to our own devices. We do come across these passages that talk about money and talk about integrity and being faithful and giving our, our lives to you and not, and not having two masters. Lord, we read this and we can, get, we can get really convicted. We can get overwhelmed. And Lord, we're supposed to get convicted and we're supposed to get overwhelmed and the purpose of that is to point us outside of ourselves and towards you. So Jesus, we come to you in faith that you finished the work. You paid it all. You've given us everything we need for life and for godliness. And so we can leave this place with joy, with power, with strength, not because we've looked at ourselves, but because we've trusted in you alone. So Jesus, help us to celebrate the Lord's Supper this morning with joy in our hearts because you paid the price in full and you give us the power to live out our faith with everything that we need. 
You've given us all things that pertain to life and godliness through your power. And to that we say thank you. And we ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen.